Good morning. Not sure why I'm, I might need that to sit down. I'm quite nervous. A few weeks ago, um, Ben had had been mentioning and, and kind of preaching from some texts that took him to a place where he was talking about the Father and and how there's so many references to the Father that we aren't aware of in Scripture. And this, um, this, this fatherly love that God has for us. And, um, and I share with you after, after the sermon, I, I just, um, I just kind of, the ones of y'all that do know me or don't know me, um, my name's Clay Petzl. Um, and I just kind of said, hey, man, I really identify with what you said because this is, this is where I grew up and this is, you know, some things that have happened and I really identify with um, crying out to the Father, if you will. So I want to start um, by just reading, well, first of all, uh, please continue to pray because I'm extremely nervous, as you can probably tell. Um, most of the time when I share my testimony, it's a drink of coffee or something. So it's a little more relaxed and I can go off on tangents and I don't want to do that this morning. So um, just bear with me. I'll start by reading a, um, a verse of scripture from Romans. Romans 8, starting in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not only to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live by, according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption to sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. Pray with me. Lord, I just, I just want you to be glorified in this moment. That's all I want. Make less of me and more of you. Jesus' name. So, <clears throat> there was a, and, and I had to write most of this because I couldn't, I've been telling Ben for two weeks, I don't want to get up there and just, just kind of go everywhere, so I, I just started writing. And so, this is, uh, this is a verse I think that we're very familiar with, we're where we have this access to the Father that we just we can just cry to Him um, for several different reasons. But there had been a silent cry for many years um, for, this, for this void in my life um, of a father. 
what does it look like to have both mommy and daddy in the same home? What does it look like to have all four of the boys and mom and dad sitting at a dinner table enjoying a meal? Questions like this I will never know or understand. And like it or not, it all really lands on one person. My father. My parents divorced in uh, the early 80s, 1980, I, I think it's what the date was. And mother, my mother and my, and my uh, there's four boys. There's one that's a year older than me, one that's <clears throat> four years older than me, and one that's five years older than me. The one that's a year older than me and my brother, we moved, or and my mother, we moved to, uh, to Dallas. And my dad and the two other brothers stayed in, in, in Waco. And my mom soon remarried to a man um, she describes as, I'm just thankful he's home at night. And a seven-year-old really doesn't understand what that statement means, but I can remember it vividly. And as years go by, I began to receive discipline and instruction from this new daddy. And I will say this, my stepfather, although he's never told me he loved me, was it very few ball games? He did teach me the value of responsibility and uh, discipline, um, which I'm very thankful for. I, I would not be, you know, and, and, and my wife, Corey, says this a lot. God will waste nothing. And even in that, I can look and see how God provided um, with this man in that way. We didn't one step foot in the doorway of a church or pray over a meal or read the Bible or talk about the things of God. And like it or not, that all really landed on one person, and that was my stepfather. So high school comes and goes, and during high school, I was introduced to the Lord uh, by a friend at school. Um, and I recall praying to accept the Lord and, you know, receiving him as the Lord of my life in front of my house on a Monday night um, as a junior in high school. And I really believe that that's where God, that's where the journey began. <clears throat> but I really never lived it. And a few short years, four, four or so years later, um, out, out of high school and I'm, I'm at work and a customer walks in and um, we just hit it off. Um, just really easy to talk to. And um, this man later invites me to church and begins to um, disciple me. Truly disciple me. Like, this is, this is a Bible. This is the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. Um, 
Write your questions down and bring them to me next week. And for two or three years, we grow together and be great friends. Um, He ends up co-signing the loans um, for college for me. Um, Later becomes the best man at my wedding. And we keep in touch for um, fairly closely for eight to ten years or so. But for the last, you know, six or eight years, he has been um, fairly distant. And it's kind of hard to track down and come to find out. Um, to once was what the you know, we might call a functional father has spiritual father has and earthly father is really coming to a lot of money and for six or eight years um, experienced extreme wealth and extreme poverty in the last episode um, led to his destruction last week. So here I'm in today listening to Ben preach in a few weeks ago in this role of you know the Heavenly Father and how we seem to be so underdeveloped in this process or this this thought of you know seeking the seeking the Father as someone that we can reach to is we just saying, you know, one of my favorite verses is his kindness will lead us to repentance. And that's what I have never seen as a father. So I, I, there's, there's no foundation for that. And, and, and I'm, as I'm talking, one of my goals is to because I know statistically nine out of ten men sitting in this congregation are in my shoes. So if we were to take a show of hands, one person out of ten would raise their hand and say, I had a daddy that showed me what it was like to love his wife is Christ of the church. He taught me how to pray. He taught me how to read the Bible. He taught me how to study the Bible. He taught me how to treat a lady. He didn't leave me uh, guessing at life. And so my goal... A secondary goal is for, for, the, for the fathers to really see this as an opportunity to um, pour themselves into their kids. After pouring themselves into the Heavenly Father. Because we, we, have, we have no goods except for what we get from, from our Heavenly Father. So, so there's three attempts. Biological father... My stepfather and this functional father 
fill in the void, and you might be asking, wow, this is, this is quite tragic, and what a waste. And it just doesn't seem right. And the reality of it is that you're, you're exactly right. Divorce <clears throat> is not the way God designed it initially with my biological parents. A functional substitute for a father is not the way God designed it. So it, when it doesn't, when something doesn't work, specifically within marriage or family life, it's typically out of God's will. So what is my hope that, that you will do with what you've heard? Um, as a father, it is your role to teach your kids to pray. It is your role. It is our role to teach our kids to, to read and study the Bible. It is our role. It is our responsibility to do these things. <clears throat> and one encouragement would be this. I've been through a study. It's called Men's Fraternity, and it's a, it's a great uh, study on uh, what it means to be a man. And one of the things that I left with that was that is, is a father looking at a daughter and a son, you need to know now as a six-year-old, as a 10-year-old, as a 12-year-old, what do you want them to look like when they leave the home? How do they dress? Do they open a door for a lady? How do they treat women? What kind of man are they looking for? How does he treat his mother? It says a lot about what a son thinks about his dad. But ultimately, you know, my prayer is that you don't leave your, your, your children guessing at life. So they leave for college and, well, what classes am I supposed to take? Sit down with them and talk to them about what classes to take. Should I marry this guy? Sit down and talk to him about marrying this guy. I mean, it's, it's something that, that I never was able to do in, uh, with my dad. Um, so I have no foundation for it. But this study, Men's Fraternity, what it did is it caused me to, um, it gave me a desire to want to reconcile with my dad. Um, he died a little over six years ago. There's a chapter in the study. It's called Remembering Dad. And um, that week of the study, my dad dies. And I never got to reconcile um, with him. And so, I, I really want to encourage you to th seriously pray and think about this. Seek counsel on this because it, is, it was so liberating to do what I did. And this is the only choice I had. So, at the casket, 
at the funeral. I sat there and looked at him, and I just cried out. Why did you leave me guessing? Why did you leave me guessing? Your children, our father doesn't leave us guessing. Your children do not need to be guessing. Now, they can make mistakes, and that's, I think there's wisdom in that, but guessing is another story. So, I'll leave you with a few verses that I think are telling about just an example of of this of of Christ reaching out to the Father. One is in Matthew seventeen five. Well, I'll read I'll read Matthew three first. Which once again, you know, when Ben had had mentioned this, and I start looking at these verses, I'm like, you know, I've never seen this before. Matthew three. Um. 17. Imagine this. And what's so awesome about this church is we have the sons, usually, I mean the sons, the fathers usually baptize the children. <clears throat> Sorry. So Jesus is uh, being baptized here. Uh, and I'll just start in... in um, in 15, but Jesus answered them, let it be so, for this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, he immediately went up from the water, and behold, heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, uh, a voice from heaven said this, this is my son, who I am well pleased. It's approval to the Son from the Father. Same exact verse almost in Matthew 17. At the end of, it's verses 1 through 5. It's, it's the transfiguration um, passage. So at the end of it, verse 5 he was still speaking. Behold, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son. This is my beloved son, who I am well pleased. Listen to him. Fathers, it means so much from a man that never heard it from his dad to hear you tell your kids, This is my son, and he's good at what he does. Listen to him. That means so much. This is my daughter. She is beautiful. Listen to her. Thoughts, those are great, appropriate verses for us as we, as we are studying what it means to cry out to, to the Father. There are several more verses, that, and I don't, I don't want to go through them, but Luke has chapter 22 and 23, there's, there's several. And, you know, I just, I just want to I want to end with this. This is 
I don't want to appear like I have it together because I don't. Last night, quiet time, Harry, I'm trying to tell the boys what I'm going to do tomorrow, and they're acting up. And I'm like, okay, boys, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share my testimony. You know what a testimony is? Which, by the way, is another, I think, thing on the list. Teach your kids how to share their faith. And anyway, so here I'm getting on my kids while I'm preparing my heart to give my testimony tomorrow. And so it was, it was quite difficult. But, but I'm just, I was just reminded that, you know, we don't have it all together. But, you know, Hebrews, um, you know, just where we are right now, I think was very appropriate. Um, 2.17, therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that, he may, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiations for sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When it gets tough and hard to dig out your Bible study and sit with the kids, just remember Christ has suffered in every way that we have. So, it'll be okay. Just do it. And that's it. Thank you. Thanks, Clay. Um, There's encouragement in that as we go to God and worship our our Heavenly Father is infinitely worthy of worship. So he's, he's infinitely more worthy of anyone we would give praise to, yet he listens and he's, he's available and he's present. And so let's be mindful of the fact that our God is listening and he's present. And he's not just listening with his ears, but he knows our hearts as well. So y'all stand and let's continue in worship and song. Lord, as we enter into a time of listening to the word preached, uh, we pray that you would sharpen our hearts and our minds and focus us and allow the Spirit to... Um, to move so that we can have understanding and insight. Thank you for being a God who loves us, who is present, who is near, who's listening, and who loves us with a love that's lacking in nothing. We, we can't even fully understand it in our uh, finite state. So we love you, Lord, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a seat. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter 6, please. I'm going to pray again, pray specifically this morning first before we pray about how we spend the next few minutes. I want to pray for fathers in this room. I want to pray for another pastor um, and a church that he was formerly pastoring that I understand that is no longer pastoring, but just a situation here in Greenville that we need to be lifting up. Let's pray. God, first, this morning, I want to pray for another church in our town. I want to pray for Crossroads Assembly of God, praying for them as they're in a time of transition and uh, going a different direction with a different pastor. I want to pray for Larry Allgood and for his family, and knowing that right now that he is caring for his wife as a husband should, and she is ailing and um, trying to figure out how now he's going to uh, provide for them just want to lift up this brother and his family, and I just pray that you would come alongside him and minister to him. 
pray, too, that you would come alongside this church, Lord, and give them a clear sense of your direction and what you would have them do, how you'd have them move in these next few weeks and months. And pray that you would lead uh, the man um, that you would have, I guess, in your perfect will uh, to be pastor of this church. Lord, too, I pray that whatever way that we can come alongside Crossroads, uh, whether maybe it's just prayer this morning, but if it's more intentional, more connected way that we would be faithful to walk in that. Just very attentive to the, um, the challenges of walking together as a people and know how things can just come unglued. Pray that you would, uh, would be Lord and sovereign and God over this transition, over this church. Or two, I want to pray for this church and how we spend these next few minutes that they would be very attentive, that we would be attentive, they would hear from your spirit, that he would equip us in these next few minutes. I pray for a clarity that I don't have, uh, uh, an ability that I don't have. I pray that you would be uh, the messenger this morning, ultimately through a mouthpiece, and that the mouthpiece would be largely out of the way. And to Lord, before we continue, I want to pray for, in light of Clay's prayer this morning, or his testimony this morning, I want to pray for men in this room, shepherds, uh, even for some of these men in this room that may not be husbands yet, young men maybe, that aren't even married. Lord, I'm grieved that we can have a room full of people that know you, love you, worship you, follow you, and most of them may have no reference point for what you look like as a father, other than what the Bible tells them. I'm heartbroken that we can have a room full of men most of which have no visual of what attentive, available, approachable means. Lord, I'm grieved over that, and in the same breath, I'm so thankful that in Christ that we can be a room full of reference points. That in Christ we can be equipped in worship and wonder and in your word to shepherd in a way that our children and our grandchildren can look back and know what you look like because they saw long glimpses of it in their father, even a frail, feeble, human father. I'm thankful that in Christ we can be that reference point. We celebrate that. We beg for that. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I'm thankful for Clay's testimony this morning. He has a lot more story there that he can tell um, if you spend time with Clay and get to know him. Dad, number one, ended in tragedy, heartbreak. Stepfather, that's the first I've really even heard much about Clay's stepfather. And spiritual father, really, number three, also ended in tragedy a couple weeks ago, heartbreak. But the beauty is that clarion message for Clay is that our message is that whatever your reference point, ultimately we have the perfect reference point in our Heavenly Father, that He does not fail us, He will not fail us, and then it's in what He is that we can step out and then be those reference points for tomorrow's church, for the row of kids that's sitting next to us, or the kids that are over there, or the kids that may have not even been thunk of yet, if you're single and unmarried and whatnot, kids. The beauty is we can be that reference point in Christ. So I'm thankful for that testimony and thankful that Clay's, in so many ways, he's being the reference point to his boys that he didn't have. And he's doing that in Christ. 
And he's equipped for that week by week. That's pretty awesome. Now, let's climb into our passage. Second Chronicles chapter 6. Let me tell you how we got here. I'm just taking a brief moment each week to sort of share context. Why we're doing what we're doing. Why we're in Second Chronicles. We have been working through the book of Hebrews up until December. We spent the month of December doing Advent. But before that, we were moving in large part, not exclusively, but in large part, at least when I'm preaching, through the book of Hebrews. And we got to the point in Hebrews chapter 3, the first six verses, that we had a series of sermons that were called the Consider Jesus Sermons. But really what we found there is as much as considering Jesus in those messages, we found one of the important points of these first six verses of Hebrews chapter 3 is that we are God's house. That the church is God's house. God's house used to be a physical structure. It used to be tabernacle, used to be temple, and now it's a people. We're like a mobile tabernacle, mobile temple. The people of God are God's dwelling place. That's the point of Hebrews chapter 3. That's the encouragement of a Hebrews preacher to a bunch of people that are sort of on the bubble because faith is hard. God is reminding them that, hey, you're the dwelling place for the living God. So he's got lots more to say there that we'll be considering in these next few months, maybe years. We'll see. But it's an important point to realize that we are God's house. So really what's kind of cool, what we're doing the first part of 2013 is now knowing that we are God's house, we're looking at some older, maybe dustier pages of our Bible with a new set of eyes. We're looking at stories that might have before seemed irrelevant for us, interesting but irrelevant, and realizing they are uber-relevant for us. What we've been doing these last few weeks, and where we're going to be this week and the next couple after this, is in the book of Second Chronicles. Put this little, my ugly, famously ugly picture up there. I want to give you a glimpse of the high water marks. This is something I put up last week. And I failed to get this out to you because I don't know how to use the point to send out, to send out a document. All right, uh, we're going to have a, a potluck that we're going to call the, the point luck at the end of January. So we can all learn how to do that. So between now and then, you'll have to put up with uh, just seeing here on Sunday morning and not really knowing what this says and hoping that maybe you can make sense of it. High watermarks of the story of salvation Creations at the far end, they sort of look like waves, okay, just so you kind of know what's, what's being diagrammed here. Creations at the far left point. I told Cody, I, I said, I want to show this thing as ugly, ugly as it is this morning yet again because you have to work harder to get it. And maybe if you work harder to get it, maybe it'll stay longer. So it's, a, it's actually a, a device on purpose, really crummy handwriting and stuff, famously bad. Creation at the far left point. The next high water mark in the story is the flood, appropriately a high water mark. The next high water mark we'll call Abraham's call. And the next high water mark we'll call the exodus out of Egypt. The next high water mark we'll call the conquest of the promised land. The next high water mark, which is where we are right now, is the temple being built and dedicated. It's about 1,000 years before Christ, about 500 years after Moses, around the time of David and Solomon is about 1,000 B.C. It's a good way to kind of put things in order. What's happening when, where are we in the story? Beyond that, the next high watermark is the exile, the Babylon, Babylon. And then the next high watermark that's not on the slide up there would be the cross. And the next high watermark 
is Christ's return. We're in the dip of this last little sway there between the high water mark of the cross and his return. The next event in this redemptive story is Christ's return. And that's why the scriptures say it's imminent. It's imminent because it's the next thing that's going to happen. We don't know when it's going to happen, but that's the next step. Okay, but this morning, we're in this next to last little dip up here on this slide where the temple is built and dedicated. Okay, you can turn off my famously ugly slide. Let me give you a little more context of specifically where we are in the story. Second Chronicles begins with Solomon praying for wisdom. It's a good prayer. Solomon gets what he's asked for. He didn't pray for riches. He prayed for wisdom, and God gives him riches in addition to wisdom. And then the next thing that Solomon does, which is really a cool picture because this is what wise people do, he gets to work building God's house. That's what wise people are about, building God's house. And in this case, he's building the physical temple. He starts recruiting people. He connects with uh, Hiram, the king of Tyre, and Hiram sends over Huram Abi, you know, the guy that we considered last week that would just win Project Runway. He'd have his own show on HGTV. This guy's pretty amazing, Huram Abi. Chapter 3, he starts building the temple. Chapter 4, the furnishings are moved into the temple. Chapter 5, the ark is moved into the temple. There's a very important day when the ark is moved in. And then in chapter 6 is the real, the tip-top point of that high water mark where Solomon blesses the people, dedicates the people, and dedicates the temple, and they functionally, essentially, move in. Chapter 6, in large part, is prayer. Solomon is asking some things of God about the temple that now we are reading with a new set of eyes and a new lens that helps us realize that what he's asking for here, we can ask of God as the church. If we are the house of God, the things he's asking for in regards to that physical house can show us some things that we could and should be asking for as a church in 2013. And then chapter 7, there's an answer from God, or at least an acknowledgement that I, hey, Solomon, I heard you. Fire rains down from heaven. Pretty good sign that God heard the prayer of Solomon. Solomon is on this structure that's right next to the altar. Fire rains down from heaven, consumes the, the offering on the altar, and Solomon's eyebrows are singed. And then 13 years later, God answers Solomon's prayer in a vision, also in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. We'll look at a little bit of that today. I want to pick up in chapter 6, verse 12. That's what we're going to be doing each week. We're going to sort of build on this thing. Chapter 6, verse 12. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, spread out his hands. Solomon had made a bronze platform. It's five cubit long five cubits wide and three cubits high, and had it set in the court, he stood on it, and then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven, and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you in all their heart, or with all their heart, who've kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand and have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way 
to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you've spoken to your servant David. Now, this next paragraph is the first request. Really, technically, that was the first request that we just read. That we never lack a man on the throne that's the lineage of David, which we don't lack to this moment because Christ is seated and in session right now. So that first one was fulfilled in Christ being seated and in session, reigning and ruling as we speak right now. But a couple weeks ago, we considered this next paragraph as the first request that we wanted to ask as a church. Listen to it. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you've promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and to your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen from heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. Some of the requests that we brought out a couple weeks ago, God, have regard for us. God, listen to us. God, would your eyes be open toward us? God, listen, listen Listen, and when you hear, forgive. What we considered as a church a couple weeks ago is that not only does God do this, but he does it in spades through the work of Christ where we now are officially adopted into his family, as Clay read this morning. We are officially family members, and we don't have to petition him and get on his schedule. He doesn't have a big iron door that we have to knock on and try and get into that has guards standing outside. He doesn't have a big appointment book to where we can get in to see him. We have full and complete access because of the work of Christ. We can now address him like our father, like Abba, Daddy, Father. A couple weeks ago, we considered as a church that, man, he has answered this in spades in Christ, that we have access to the living God, and there's beauty in seeing God as our, our Father, as our Father. The next request is in the next paragraph, beginning in verse 22. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. What we considered last week is that if Solomon is praying this in regards to this house, then we can pray this in regards to this house. Then when people come and gather each week that they can hear a message exposed by God, in fact, that we can essentially stand next to the altar and have an eye, eye contact with the living God. A truth moment with God where each week we can have sort of a reckoning where maybe even in the same sermon that one person might sit next to another person, where one person leaves convicted, feeling, man, I am guilty. And the next person might leave feeling encouraged and rewarded if they've been moving in a way that is righteous. We considered last week, through the eyes really of the supper and through the eyes of these jealousy rites, that in some ways God is a jealous husband. Week before, God is a great father. And last week, we saw him as jealous husband, expecting 
fidelity, expecting faithfulness as a husband should expect that of his wife. This week, we consider the next request beginning in verse 24. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they've sinned against you, sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to them and to their fathers. I want to break down here for the next few minutes what is actually being asked here. I want us not to miss it. In fact, weeks ago when I began to read this passage and look ahead, I read that paragraph and sort of took it at face value and just, okay, inconsequential. And the more and more I studied it, the more and more I realized this is a profound request. Let's look specifically at what Solomon is asking here. He's not asking God to do something for a victim. I want you to hear that. He's not asking God, God, do something for someone who has been somehow on the receiving end of some crime or injustice. He's making a specific request here that we shouldn't miss. He's asking here something of God for someone who's been defeated because they sinned against God. He's not asking just for the blank, the, the, the grade A defeated victim. He's asking something of God here for someone who's been defeated because they've been sinful. Because they've been, I'm going to have some parents mad at me because I'm using this word, because they've been stupid. I know a lot of houses don't use that word. God, when someone has been sinful and stupid and they're defeated as a result of that, I'm asking something for them. Let that hit you for a moment. He's asking something of God for someone who has been stupid and sinful and has thumbed their nose at their creator. Keep in mind, Solomon in chapter 1 asked for wisdom and God gave it to him? God gave him wisdom and yet he's asking this? Let that hit you for a moment, what he's asking for here. Who specifically he is appealing for. Now, knowing who he's asking for here, the sinful, stupid, the one who has wronged God and thumbed their nose at him, Knowing who he's asking blessings for, let's consider specifically what he's asking of God. That God would hear, forgive, and restore them to their land. That God would hear from this stupid sinner. That he would forgive this stupid sinner. And that God would restore this stupid sinner to his land. I don't want us to miss that. Does it surprise you what he's asking for here? Remember, this was the guy that's the wisest man on the face of the earth. The guy that asked for wisdom and was granted it in spades. And here he is just a few chapters later saying, hey, God, um, I have a request for you. Somebody that has thumbed their nose at you, somebody that has 
betrayed you, someone that has wronged you, would you hear their prayer, forgive them, and restore their land to them when they lose it? You gotta let that hit you. You gotta let that surprise you. He is asking the God they've wronged to forgive them, and not only to forgive them, but to restore their land. Just the first part of the request alone would be sort of scandalous, that God would forgive someone who has blatantly wronged them. But then the second part of the request that, oh, by the way, God, would you restore their land to them as well? It's really a pretty shocking request, and I want to make sure that that sinks in. What would make more sense to me if I were to make up a God If I were to conjure up an appropriate response from God, what would make more sense would be a request from a wise man that God, that you would restore land to those from whom it's been taken. Restore land to the victims, the ones that are receiving end of some crime or some injustice. God, do that first. And secondly, God, if someone's guilty, sock it to them. If someone has thumbed their nose at you, God, if I'm going to conjure up the kind of God that I want to make, God, you give it to them. If someone's been the victim of a crime, God, come to their rescue and get their land back. But if they've thumbed their nose at you, then make them pay for their sin and for their rebellion. That would make a whole lot more sense than God, um, forgive the stupid God, forgive the blatant sinner, and oh, by the way, restore their land and their blessing to them. I thought about this. Every time we have an occasion where we look at our God and we consider our God, and he's just so shockingly different from other man-made gods that we should take a moment and just consider that. Every other God that every other man has ever made up would do exactly like I described. Smash the guilty and take care of the victims. That's worldly thought, and that's proof that, God, that, that man has made up those gods. Our God is so shockingly different. Man wouldn't make him up. He's so shockingly different that even if we were to try and make it up, it wouldn't, he wouldn't look like this. A God that they could ask these things of, the fact that he could be asked for these things and that Solomon wouldn't get struck by lightning right there is a shocker. And the reality that we find in the rest of our Bibles is that God not only doesn't smash Solomon for the request, our God actually specializes in helping the stupid. Man, don't you love that about our God? That's like his forte. He specializes in helping the stupid and sinful. And then he uses those forgiven, stupid and sinful, to be the foolish things that will confound the wise. Then he uses those forgiven, stupid, and sinful to confound the wise. A wise man can, in fact, ask this of our God. Boom, man, right? A wise man can ask this of our God, knowing that, yes, he specializes in this. Now, I left out an important qualifier. I developed there from the passage in these last couple of minutes who Solomon's praying for, And then I developed what Solomon is asking for. 
that God, that you would hear, that you would forgive, that you would restore. What I left out, though, is a qualifier. There's a very important qualifier in this passage, and one that I feel like should equip you as parents, should equip you as worshipers. It equips me as both of the above, but it also equips me as an elder. The important qualifier from this passage, let's look at it. Three things would happen. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they've sinned against you, because they're stupid, and here's the qualifier, and they first turn again, second, they acknowledge your name, and third, they pray and plead with you in this house, then hear, forgive, and restore. There's an important qualifier in here, and it's a qualifier that can't be missed. We're going to develop it in these next few minutes. First of all, that they would turn again. This is the language of repentance. We, I don't know how long ago it's been at this point, but at some point in these last couple of years, we've had a sermon that was totally dedicated to repentance from Second Chronicles or Second Corinthians chapter seven. The entire morning was dedicated to understanding the difference between remorse and repentance because they look just alike. They both cry. They both are sad. They both brokenhearted. But the outcomes are vastly different. We had an entire sermon dedicated to what repentance looks like, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, a great instrument for you as a worshiper, as a parent, and if you serve in any sort of context where you have to discern the difference, teachers maybe, between remorse and repentance. But here is another equipping passage on what repentance looks like. 1 Kings chapter 8 is actually the source document. Don't turn there. Just listen to this. 1 Kings chapter 8, you may not realize this, is actually the source document for 2 Chronicles chapter 6. The passage is taken almost verbatim. It was written four, five hundred, maybe even 600 years after 1 Kings was written. And there are sections that are taken verbatim, but there's some little things that are either left out or inserted. And there's something that's left in, that's left out of 2 Chronicles that's in 1 Kings chapter 8, listen to this passage that helps us understand what's being spoken of here of turn again. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they've sinned against you, and if they turn again, verbatim, the next two words are not in Second Chronicles, to you. When they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear, forgive, and restore. It's almost identical, but it's different enough to where when we look at the other passage, it'll help us understand what's being spoken of here in this turn again. This qualifier for one that you're going to hear, forgive, and restore is first that they turn again to you, God, that they turn. There's the implication that they're turning away from sin and turning to God that they're turning away from their own ways and their own design and turning back to God, that they would first turn again. We're going to develop this more later. Secondly, that they would acknowledge his name. Now, I'm going to interpret Scripture with Scripture in the next few minutes. I usually do that anyway. In fact, that's the best instrument that we have for making sense of God's Word There's a passage that will be familiar to you. You can turn there if you'd like. I'm probably going to be there before you can get there. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Many of you probably have it memorized. We're going to use this passage to let us 
to help us understand what's being spoken of here, what's being asked of God in acknowledging your name. Listen, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Sound familiar? In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. This in all your ways, acknowledge him helps flesh out a little bit what it means to acknowledge his name. It means to acknowledge his name as Lord and sovereign and God over all things to include your marriage, your work, your parenting, your health, your life. It means nothing is off limits. That God is Lord and sovereign over your school, over your relationships. That God is God over all those things. Acknowledging him and acknowledging his name is to say that God is attentive. He's not snoozing in that area in my life. But he actually has sway there. He has involvement. He actually has oversight. He has lordship over that area. I thought of some passages that came to mind where someone in some way that's really awesome is acknowledging him. I thought about these examples. Just listen to these. Psalm 33. My flesh and may, my heart may fail, but I'm going to acknowledge God in regards to my flesh and my heart. We have people in this body or people that are connected to this body whose bodies are failing right now. I mean, like organs shutting down. And, but I'm going to acknowledge him that God is the strength of, strength, strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is acknowledging his name over that situation. I'm going to acknowledge that he's not snoozing. I'm going to acknowledge that he is God and Lord and sovereign even over that. Here's a very familiar one. This Psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is coming from a guy who'd been betrayed by his king, hunted down by his king that he served, the father of his best friend. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He lies me, leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of, shallow, of the shadow of death, I'm going to acknowledge him. I'm going to acknowledge his name and I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Man, these are just a couple of examples that came to mind. I thought about Job acknowledging the name of God where he says, though he slay me, I will trust him. And our Bibles are full of those that acknowledge him. Paul's another example saying that God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He's acknowledging God's name and God's lordship over all things. That's not some things. Over all things. Man. Another satellite that I found in Hebrews chapter 13. Just listen to this because I'm already there. Hebrews chapter 13. For we... Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Let us continually 
offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That's the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Continual praise in every single area of your life. That is acknowledging his name. Acknowledging his lordship and sovereignty over the man you married, over the woman you married, over the people you work with. Acknowledging his sovereignty and lordship over the child you're raising. Acknowledging his sovereignty and lordship over the people you call mom and dad. Even that, even Clay can acknowledge God's lordship over dad number one, stepdad number two, spiritual dad number three. God's lord over every bit of that. Acknowledging his name, Clay would do that in those cases. Acknowledging his lordship and his name in the body you walk around in. Some of you may have bad knees, bad backs. You may have some sickness. You may have something that you're dealing with every single day, some thorn in the flesh. And acknowledging his name says, you know what? He's Lord over that. He didn't forget something. He didn't leave something out. He's got a design in that. We've got two kids that aren't here today, so maybe I can actually say it. Two kids that are visually impaired that we have to live with it every single day. Trying to figure out how are we going to get this information in somebody that is, is minus a sense or has a sense that's underdeveloped. Dealing with it every single day, realizing God is Lord over that. God wasn't snoozing. Well, acknowledge his name in that. Acknowledging his lordship in the place you live. Even Greenville. Acknowledging his lordship. I'm supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be here. He is Lord and sovereign over me living right here in Greenville, the place you live. Lord and sovereign over your relationships. Acknowledging his name as Lord and sovereign. Here, here's, where, here's where it gets crazy. Over your besetting sins. He can be Lord and sovereign even over the things that you often fail in without authoring those things. He can allow you to struggle in those things so that those will be tutors of mercy and grace in your life that you will always have this side of glory unless you're lying to yourself. Those things will be tutors of mercy and grace. Those things also will be tutors of need. They will teach you to depend on him. That God can be Lord and sovereign. You can acknowledge his name even over things that you continually fail in. He can be Lord and sovereign over that without authoring it. And he can use it for his own glory as a tutor that teaches you what mercy looks like. As a tutor that teaches you what grace looks like. As a tutor that teaches you to need him and depend on him. And the third part of this important qualifier, the first was that they turn again. The second part is that they acknowledge his name. And the third part is that they pray and plead. That they pray and plead with him for help. This passage, I'm telling you right now, is seriously equipping for understanding the difference between remorse and repentance. Parents, you probably know what I'm talking about. There are occasions where you need to know the difference. You're trying to parent your, your, your kid and trying to figure out how in the world am I going to discern, is he just upset because he's caught? Or is there really a heart change here? Man, 
Think about Lance Armstrong in the news this week. Is he confessing because he's caught or is there some sort of conviction there? This stuff is ever in front of us, whether we're parents or whether we have relationships or friendships. Is this friend of mine that has done this, are they just remorseful because this thing didn't work out or are they truly repentant? This is a great instrument to go to to equip you to discern the difference between remorse and repentance. So Solomon here is asking that God would forgive. Let's go back and just grab this for a second. And then we're going to see if God answered this prayer. And then we're going to say what we're going to identify what this says about God and then what it says about us. Okay, that's the plan for the next few minutes. So Solomon asks that God would forgive and restore the land to the stupid. Let's figure out who he's asking for. Who are repentant, acknowledging his name and his lordship and are praying and pleading with him. He's not asking those things for outright victims. That's implied. That's the kind of God. You got to know that's obviously the kind of God we have that's going to help victims. But for the stupid and the sinful, that's, who, that's what this request is about right here. And note also that he's not asking God to forgive the stupid and sinful who are, hear it, unrepentant. He's not asking God, forgive the stupid and sinful who are unrepentant. I've searched my Bible cover to cover, and I can't find God ever being asked to do that and God ever doing that. Repentance seems to be a key ingredient in this transaction. I don't know if this request is made anywhere in our Bibles. Forgive the unrepentant. Now, we'll see if God answered this prayer. If you're still in 2 Chronicles, stay there and look at chapter 7. If you're not, go back there. We're going to look at whether God answered this prayer. We know what the prayer was. We know who he's asking it for. We know the qualifier, turn again, acknowledge his name, and pray and plead. And we'll see what God does. First of all, in chapter 7, we know that fire rained down from heaven, whoosh, takes, burns up the, the offering on the altar, so we know God heard it. And then 13 years later, God answers the prayer in a vision for Solomon. In chapter 11, beginning in verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, if they turn, if they acknowledge, and if they pray and plead, then yep, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. He makes a pretty awesome promise here, and now we're going to see if he follows through on it. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. You know, listen, I'm going to tell you right now, it occurs to me, it's, it occurs to me as irony that we could be talking about this kind of stuff, about the kind of God that we have, the kind of God that we could, first of all, make this request to, and the kind of God that would actually follow through on this request, and that we could somehow be sleepy or distracted. The irony that we could somehow be sleepy or distracted. Let me tell you right now, if you're sleepy or distracted or disengaging in some way, what I learned in the Marine Corps going through training where my life depends on what I hear, I would stand up at the back. I stand up at the back. I might look kind of stupid standing up in the back, but hey, I'm going to get that information because my life depends on it and the Marines under my charge depend on it. 
So some of you shepherds that had a hard week, you're like, man, I'm sleepy. Stand up at the back. This is too important for you to miss. You're going to be equipped in understanding the difference between remorse and repentance right now. And you're also going to be equipped to worship and wonder when you see the kind of God that we have. Reveille. Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. What an awesome chapter. Man, reading through my Bible, doing this McShane reading guide. If you don't have a plan for the year, grab the McShane reading guide. It will blow your mind. It's good medicine. I'm reading through Nehemiah chapter 9 this week. And I'm wondering, did God follow through on what he, what he said he was going to do? And listen to what unfolds in Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. There's a section here that's not really related, but it's just so good I'm going to read it anyway because I know we're not distracted and I know we're hungry because we need to eat. And it's just good food. So I'm going to read it anyway. Verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that's in it, the seas and all that's in them. And you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. You made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Girgashite. And you kept your promise for you are righteous. And you saw the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. You told them to go on to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. So you did what a man-made God would do, and you smashed them like a bug. That's how this would read if man was making this up. But listen to the character of our God. But, a great word, but's a good word. But you're a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. What? What an awesome God we have. What a surprise God. Not one that I would make up. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Even when Aaron says, I threw the gold in the fire and pop, out came a golden calf. And had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. 
the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way that did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth. You gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes didn't even wear out. Their feet didn't even swell. What an awesome God we have. Seriously, that's what the, the, the people right here in Nehemiah are saying. What an awesome God we have. And you gave them kingdoms. This people who worshiped the golden calf, this people that did all kind of crazy stuff said, oh, we sure pine for Egypt and the pots of meat. Sure was so grand in Egypt. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children of the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possessed. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with the kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, houses they didn't even build, cisterns that they didn't even dig, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient, rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. What? More and more I read my Bible, more and more I figure out about God's character and more and more I learn about my character. If you read these stories about the Israelites and you think, man, what a messy bunch. I don't ever do these kind of things. <laughs> I would never be guilty of those sorts of things. Man, you need to keep reading. You gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. In the time of their suffering, they cried out to you. See, we're starting to see glimpses here that start to make sense. Okay, you gave them into the hand of their enemies. You heard from them. You heard them from heaven, though, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet, when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. That's the kind of God we have. It says again in verse, verse 31, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you're a gracious and merciful God. This is the kind of God that we serve. He's not a bug smasher. He's not a cosmic killjoy. The kind of God that we serve is merciful and gracious for the repentant that acknowledge his name, that pray and plead with him. Man, God answered the prayer all right. And he made a promise and he makes good on his promise. The whole context of Nehemiah is yet another application of it. They lost the land. They went into exile, and here Ezra and Nehemiah are leading the people to rebuild the city. And when this passage is being shared in Nehemiah chapter 9, God is fulfilling, yet again, I'm going to restore you to your land. 
because that's the kind of God that I am. Merciful and gracious. I hear, I forgive, I restore the repentant. The repentant. What does this say about God? Well, it says when defeat is connected to sin, that we can actually ask something of our God. When defeat is connected to sin, you don't have to go hide, which is what you want to do. You'll go find a rock to crawl under. I'm going to go hide from God. You don't have to do that where our God. When defeat is connected to sin, you can actually ask something of our God. Because we don't have the kind of God that only hears us if we've been good boys and girls. Do you hear that, people of God? Don't teach your kids that either. You've been a good boy today, so you, you, God will hear you. What? We don't have the kind of God that only hears us if we've been good boys or good girls. We don't have a God who's approachable only if we haven't sinned. Otherwise, we would never be able to approach him. We have the kind of God, this is the scandal of it all, we have the kind of God that gives second chances. We have the kind of God that gives third chances, that gives five chances. We have the kind of God when Peter asked him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? We have the kind of God that says, this guy says as many as seven times. We have the kind of God that says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. That's the kind of God that we serve. His mercy and grace doesn't end. And our need for it doesn't end this side of glory. You don't need less of it when you've been a Christian for 50 years. You still need it just as much. As a 50-year-old, you just ought to be more attentive to your own sin. It's still there. You'll still need gobs of mercy and grace. You're going to still need this character of God. One of the things that I enjoyed about this Wednesday night study that we had just this week was this picture of the altar fires constantly burning. Jesus says, make sure those altar fires don't go out because you're going to always need them. I'm going to give you these sacrifices to do every day, these sacrifices to do weekly, these sacrifices to do monthly. I'm even going to give you a sacrifice to do yearly because there won't be a time where you don't need it. You will always need it. So leave the fire burning, and I'm the kind of God that will yet forgive you 70 times 7. What kind of God would do this? Our kind of God. Our kind of God would do this. One who forgives the frequent flyer, the perpetual sinner. That's our God. When you're sharing the good news of who our God is, make sure you share who our God is. That's our God right there. Never tires in mercy and grace for the repentant. Now, we ask the question, what does it say about our God? We're going to end with the question, what should this say about us? If this is the kind of God that we serve, 
what kind of people then should we be? I hope you're asking that every week. If God is loving Father, available, approachable, attentive, what kind of church then should we be? What kind of shepherds? Let's start with fathers. What kind of fathers then should we be? Approachable, available, attentive. If God is that kind of father, then our shepherds of families should be approachable, attentive, available. Mothers too. It's not just a dad thing. Approachable, available, attentive. What kind of families should we be as a whole? We should be approachable, available, attentive to needs and opportunities surrounding us. What kind of church should we be? Approachable, available, attentive. What kind of elder do I want to be? Approachable, available, attentive. Man, this travels. That's the first week. The second week, we see him as a jealous husband. If he's jealous for fidelity, then what kind of church should we be? We should be jealous for the same. Not as meddlers trying to fix each other, but as brothers and sisters who are jealous for fidelity in each other's lives. Because two are better than one. When one falls down, one's there to help them up. They have a better return for their work. Remember, it was a murderer that said, what, am I my brother's keeper? The anti-version of that is that we are our brother's keeper, not as meddlers, but as fellow brothers and sisters. Man, I'm pining for fidelity in you. I'm pining for fidelity in me, and I need your help to be faithful, and you need mine. Man, if God's that kind of God, then I want to be that kind of man, and we ought to be that kind of church that are pining for fidelity. And then asking the question this week, if God is the helper of the repentant, defeated, if he gives the defeated a chance to start over, if he forgives the repeat offender, if he helps the defeated not only forgiving them, but helping restore them to their land, then by googly moogly, we should be that kind of people right? If anybody ever steps foot in this doors or engages us as a church, and we have this thought of, ah, they've messed up pretty bad, a little too far gone, then we've missed it. And that point where we depart from the character of our God. Or if we as a church have an occasion where there's someone in our body is like, man, you know what? You failed up 70 times 7, you failed 70 times 7 plus 1, and I'm done with you. That's the point where we've departed from the character of our God. Man, we're to be untiring in representing the character of a merciful and gracious God as a people. If someone is turning back to Christ and trusting him after sin, even as a frequent flyer, man, we have got to engage them and come alongside them. And we've got to know if you're a frequent flyer, if you're a frequent flyer, or if I'm one, that we're not going to give up on each other. We're not going to bail on each other if repentance is there. If repentance is there, we don't quit each other, period. If someone is repentant, then we should do all we can to help them get their land back, their friendships, their relationships, access to the table if they're repentant. And this is how, I'm telling you right now, this is very equipping for me too. If they're not repentant though, I don't want to give them their land back. I don't know if there's a more important point, at least equipping for me, that helped me in this sermon than that point right there. 
If someone is unrepentant, I don't want to entice them with the relationships, with the cisterns, with the houses they didn't build. I don't want to give them those things back until I see a change of heart. And I wouldn't want someone to give that to me either because that's going to make a mockery of God's name rather than reflect his character. You understand that? If I've thumbed my nose at God and at you, and if I've lost the trappings of the land, the blessings, let me use it, not a, not a negative word, the blessings of the land, if you don't see repentance in me, don't give me those blessings back. Because if you do, you're not reflecting God. You're reflecting a worldly view. Man, the, the blessings go for the repentant. Don't get the cart before the horse. This will help you as parents too. Your kid has thumbed their nose at you and they've lost some privileges. They've lost their we for a week or two. Don't give it back to them until you see repentance. All you've done is save some electricity money maybe. Apart from that, <laughs> maybe the wheel lasts a couple weeks longer, but you've not changed the heart. Man, we should look for a change of heart before we give the blessings of the land. Man, if this is the kind of God that we have, then we should be this kind of people. Offering the land back in the absence of repentance would be to make a mockery of God's name. It would be to make a chump of God. And our God is no chump, and his church should not be a chump either. Man, that's misunderstanding grace. That's misunderstanding grace. Forgiveness is for the repentant. I'm going to end with a story, a parable. It's a nice visual for our supper, for the character of God, for the kind of church that we should be. My favorite story is in our Bible, Luke chapter 15. I want you to turn there because I want you to see this. Luke chapter 15. We're going to move right into the supper here. So if you've gone the distance, if some of you have managed to stay awake after my stiff rebuke, some people don't like to be told to wake up, but man, there's too much at stake. I'm telling you, there's too much at stake. <laughs> right? I mean, this is, this, we're not joking. This isn't a joke. This isn't a club. This isn't a club meeting where you missed out on the, the notes of the, get, pick it up on the, on the, the agenda later. We're equipping you for worship and wonder for the living God. I mean, this is, this is a serious, this is more serious than, than training I had in the Marine Corps. I take it that serious. When I was going through training, I had a, a captain that he had, a, you'd be in your uniform, you know, and you're sitting in class, and if you'd fall asleep, he'd have a, a, um, an eraser. This back in the day when we had real chalkboards or chalk, like vintage, you know. And this, chalk, this, this eraser was just covered with chalk. And if you fell asleep in his class, he would take that thing, boom, and it would just hit you and poof. You'd look like a sugar cookie. Because <laughs> there's too much at stake, man. <laughs> and that was pale shadow, pale shadow of what's at stake in here, man. I'm telling you. It'd be the church where you're not allowed to sleep. That's right. I'm okay with that. <laughs> Listen to this story from Luke chapter 15. Mm, this is good medicine. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that's coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, 
The younger son gathered up all that he had and took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. Stupid, sinful, lost everything. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. It just seems to work like that, doesn't it? You run out of something, then then famine hits. Okay, God, seriously. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. I love this imagery. And he's longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. You see a turning here. You see, acknowledging you are father and I've sinned against you and against heaven. And he arose and came to his father. But here's the father heart of our God. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion. Our God does not smash bugs. Our God feels compassion and he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. Notice, he's still home. He didn't go find his son with promises of feasts. Come on back home, son, we'll make you a feast. His son had to pine for pig slop. He had to hit rock bottom and find true repentance and then come home. And then dad is mercy and grace. Man, I got it. It's ample. It's available And it's about to just pour all over you. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. (laughs) Not only am I going to forgive you, but I'm going to restore your land. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and he's found, and they began to celebrate. This morning when we take the supper, I want you to envision the supper that we take right now as nice application of this meal with our father with a room full of prodigals. A room full of prodigals. If there's something in you that doesn't identify the prodigal, keep reading, please. Keep reading. You're going to be so difficult between now and then. You're just going to be hard to live with. You're going to be a difficult wife. You're going to be a difficult husband. You're going to be a difficult parent. You're going to be a difficult kid. If you can't say what Fonzie couldn't say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Some of you younger folks have, you don't even know who Fonzie is, man. Fonzie was on happy days. He could never say, I'm sorry. 
If you don't identify with a prodigal man, you're going to be difficult. But if you do, oh, man, you're in store for a treat. You're in store for a feast. And you're in store for a fellowship of prodigals as we enjoy the kind of God that we have that helps the defeated stupid who are repentant. That helps the repentant. Man, let me pray. We'll distribute the elements. God, I'm thankful that we have this kind of God. I pray that we will be this kind of church. I pray that we will reflect your character and your nature and your name. I pray that we as a church will have ample grace and mercy that will be unending, 70 times 7 times 700 for the repentant. And Lord, I pray too that we will not be chumps as a church that we will see the mockery that it makes of your name when we try and give the trappings and blessings of the land before we see repentance. Lord, I pray that we will be wise as a result of this equipping. I pray that we will reflect your character and your name. And I pray too that as we dine in these next few minutes, that we dine as prodigals restored enjoying the kind of God that we have that's left a light on for us, that has arms open, ready to embrace us and put a fine robe on us and a ring on our finger and shoes on our feet. We enjoy this meal of restoration. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. take this like the prodigal son would have taken it like he would have felt at the feast what seriously i i would have been okay with just being a hired hand (laughs) you putting a coat on me a ring on my finger shoes on my feet and calling me your son i know what i deserve is this the kind of god that you are man let's take it with just a sense of awe I faked some people out. I saw some people go, uh, uh. I I shouldn't do that. I wouldn't do it on purpose. Let's take it heartily. Take and eat and drink. God, I'm thankful that we can take this meal marveling that you've embraced us. We love you. You're so thankful. We enjoy this in Christ's name and because of his work. Amen. Let's continue in song. Announcements, and then I'm going to end with a benediction. You know, in the month of December, we put it in front of y'all for a special offering for our Lottie Moon offering. You may remember a Sunday where Brad shared what that was. It's to fund our foreign missions. Uh, man, I just want to tell you, I'm, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for God's work through y'all. In the month of December, it was thirty-six hundred bucks. Thirty-six fifty-five was given, and over the course of the year, a little over seven thousand dollars was given toward Lottie Moon. That's I. I want to. I don't. I don't want to be proud of you, but I want to boast of Christ in you. There's, I want to distinguish between that because being proud of you would terminate on you. Because I know who's doing that, and I'm thankful that He did that through y'all, and I'm thankful that we're that kind of church. Then, when we put a need in front of you, that it's overflowing. That's a blessing. A couple of brief announcements. Uh, 
On the 27th, I mentioned it this morning when I was confessing my inability to, to send out a, a file on the point, that we will have a point luck is what we're calling it. It's potluck where we're going to explain to you how to use the point. And uh, we're going to do that on January 27th at 6 p.m. in here. So put that on your calendar and we'll have a good meal and uh, we'll figure out how to use the point. Some of you for the first time maybe. It's pretty funny though because you can put shepherds of families. Your family's at your mercy. You can put whatever picture you want of them next to their, who it is. So that's one of the funnest things for me is I found the, the most ridiculous picture I could find for every one of my family members. Power is fun. Ladies retreat, I want to encourage you that if you're a lady and you haven't signed up for that, that that's a pretty awesome deal in these past years. And that uh, registration is going right now. So just take a look at the bulletin. You can get the information there. And then I will find my, um, yeah, here it is. Benediction. Y'all stand, and I'm going to dismiss us with this passage of Scripture. Seems fitting in light of some of the things that we've engaged this morning. And I'm sharing this as prayer, reading Scripture, but here's how the way to think of a prayer, or think of benediction. This is our prayer this morning as we leave, Father. May our sons in their youth be like plants full-grown. Our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Amen and amen. Y'all have a great week.